Well, it is uh, my distinct honor this evening to introduce our speaker, my longtime friend, uh, John Mazel. He's also a longtime friend, probably to a lot of you uh, in here, but I have known John a long time. In fact, I've been on some uh, uh, short-term mission trips with him that have been uh, uh, life-changing. Life uh, and John has, for those of you who are new here, don't know him, he has East-West Ministries, which is an evangelical and church planting uh, ministry. They, they go in many parts of the world and specialize in parts of the world that are unreached, like less than 1% of the people are believers, and in many cases, less than 1% have ever even heard the name of Jesus Christ. So that it's, uh, he does have a special ministry. But um, beyond that, I uh, just want to say is, and a lot of people in here can testify to this, that John is, while being a humble man, has such a passion for Jesus Christ and such a desire for the, uh, for the world to know Jesus. And he's been that way for a long time, has been faithful uh, to Christ with that message and has truly for a long time uh, fought the good fight and kept the faith. So again, it is my great honor to introduce uh, John Mazel. A couple of things before we start. Uh, I just, I want to thank people like Kelly and Walter and Tex and you guys that are out there carrying the flags in the classroom and the courtrooms and the marketplace. And uh, I think one of the things that just blushes the socks off of me is uh, men like yourself that get up every day, uh, clothe yourself in Christ and go to the marketplace and communicate to a world the reality that uh, Jesus does make a difference. And uh, this conference is really built around uh, trying to be an encouragement to you, uh, that your fire would continue to be hot. And uh, it's well worth it, I can assure you. I uh, thought I would uh, share some things tonight <clears throat> about the gorilla in the room, <laughs> which is the economy and money. Your money, my money, what's happening to the church, what's happening in the world, you know, we've seen uh, the headlines, the news, we hear all these cliches about global meltdown, about credit crisis, about foreclosure epidemic. Ep epidemic. Uh, I think Jim said before foreclosure became cool. Uh, I, I think that was, a, that was a good statement there and so forth. But there are probably nobody in this room that hasn't been affected in the last... 10 months for what's been happening in this country and uh, around the world. Uh, there are people in this room, uh, I know, that have the biblical perspective uh, squared away as it relates to what God has to say about what he entrusts to us. Uh, there are many of us that have much to learn, I believe. And I think, I hope as we leave here tonight, we'll see the importance of really having God's perspective as it relates to what he has entrusted to you. Everybody here has been affected. Uh, your assets have been depleted. There are people here that are unemployed, that have been laid off, that are in the process. The attendance is down because people could not afford uh, to be here. And I think it's very, very important that you and I get God's perspective 
in regards to this particular issue. What is God saying to us? What's his framework? The first message that God has with all of this, I believe, is, is to the church. And I think the quicker we in the church get the message, the quicker God can uh, begin to move on and begin to leverage us uh, as a result of the lessons that we've learned here. I teach a number of Bible studies in Dallas, and I have a lot of guys that, uh, in the financial community, go, work with Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, mortgage brokers, uh, real estate companies they own, et cetera, et cetera. And as we dialogue about these issues and try to see what uh, the scriptures have to say, I, I tell every one of them, as I tell myself, I said, first and foremost, uh, go to a room, close the door, get you a piece of paper, get you a pen, and say, God, what are you saying to me? What is the message that you want to communicate to me? I think part of our trouble and part of what our Father is after is, is what, well, before I say that, let me just say this. What I want to share with you tonight, it's from our Father, and he's not mad. God doesn't get mad at his children. God took all of his anger out 2,000 years ago on the person of Christ. But God does discipline us as children. He's trying to get our attention. And we've got to be very, very careful as it relates to the sins of the culture becoming the sins of the church. There's a verse in Romans 1 that says, And they forsook the truth of God for a lie, and they served and worshipped the creation more than the creator. Now, that's okay for the unbeliever. The unbeliever's got to live that way. He believes the lie. Uh, he's got to buy in to the creation to find his sense of identity and his toys and his tours and his gears and his gadgets. That's what gives him meaning and his purpose. But we're to find our identity in the creator, but we've kind of gotten the two mixed. And many times we have to guard our heart against the fight of also finding our sense of identity in the creation more than the creator. And so the sins of the culture become the sins of the church and the sins of the culture of the greed and the arrogance and the pride. It's, uh, uh, my, my heart is so susceptible to that. Uh, you know, the older I get in the Lord, the more I'm amazed at the independence that I want to go my own separate way apart to what God really desires me to go in my walk with him. And so what we share tonight and what we look at, I'm basically going to just look at some scriptures and let the scriptures talk to you. Uh, God's got a message to manifest to each one of you that are different. Because this room, we're all in different places. Uh, in our personal walk uh, with Christ and, and with the resources that God has put at our disposal. But I do want to do this. I want to inspire you to become generous and a joyful giver. Uh, not a legalistic tither, but a joy of giving when you begin to catch what God wishes to do with what he entrusts to you. I feel like probably the most important statement that I'll say tonight is this next statement. 
because for the most part, we can throw everything out and you'll just hear some words and, and you know, you won't be motivated, I don't think, by the Spirit of God. <clears throat> but many times this issue of money and finances, it, it, it's kind of the last area of surrender that we're willing to give over uh, to the King of Glory. And the depth of your surrender is directly related to the depth of your faith that you really believe that Jesus loves you and that your citizenship is in heaven and this is not home. We have been left here as aliens and strangers to execute a mission for the glory of Christ. And to the depth that I really believe that Christ loves me in his leadership, in his lordship over me, to that degree will I surrender and offer my life to him no matter what. I think uh, a couple of motivations as it comes to money uh, about what Jesus had to say. We're all familiar with the fact Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus is the one who said, I was rich, I became poor, that in my poverty you might be rich. These aren't my words. What you're going to hear tonight is Jesus' frame of reference. I hope you're all familiar with the passage, talk about being motivated in uh, Matthew 6, in which Jesus says, hey guys, don't store up stuff on earth, but lay up your treasures in heaven. You see, Jesus has been on both sides of the equation. He's been up there, he's lived up there, and he came down here to planet Earth. And so he's got a pretty good perspective. And he says, I want to tell you, I'm telling you the truth. Uh, it's up there in the unseen more than it is down here. And then he makes this statement in which he says, for where your treasure is, there is your heart. You know, we could come up here tonight, and each person could stand up here and give 30 hours of theological dissertation on what the Bible might say, and we would not know where your heart really is. We could spend 120 seconds and look at your checkbook, and we could tell you exactly where your heart is. You know, follow the money trail. Well, the treasure is, there's your heart. And what God is after is our heart. And that's why the money issue is so important. He says, the eyes of the Lord are looking all over the earth. Give me a man. Give me a man that will give me his heart that I might prove myself strong. There's a motivation to the fact that God wants us to get this so that we can begin to experience it. And he can begin to leverage us in a way that none of us can even imagine. One of the most important verses to me that motivates me is found in Luke 16. It says this. This is Jesus on this discourse of money. He says, So if you have not been trustworthy in handling your money or worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? See what he's saying there? He's saying, Maisel, what you do with the money that I entrust to you will have an awful lot to do if I can entrust to you my person, and my purposes to you for what I wish to accomplish in and through you. Romans 12.1 tells us that, 
you know, that we're familiar with. It talks about presenting your body as a living sacrifice. And then it says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. In other words, you've got to begin to think differently. This is an upside-down kingdom. Everything that we see in culture as it relates to this particular issue is pretty much contrary to what the Bible tells us. It's an upside-down kingdom. And it says you've got to change the way you think. And then he makes this statement, the reason we're to be renewed in our mind, so that you may prove that the will of God is good. It is perfect and acceptable. You know what God wants? God wants some men that will chase after him to prove to the world when we say, I'm all in with Jesus Christ. And God begins to demonstrate himself and begins to leverage us in only a way that he can. We're proving to the world that his way is the best way no matter what I think it might cost me down here. Now, this particular issue is an issue of faith. You all know we're called to live by faith. Uh, the Bible tells us without faith it's impossible to please him. Uh, faith has to do with the unseen. Every time I start to step out in the area of faith when God asks me to do something, you know what meets us? Mr. Fear. Mr. Fear is always there because when it comes to my money, the name of the game is to be cautious. What if I give too much? What if I don't have enough? What about my just-in-case account? Mr. Fear is always there because the motivation for self-preservation is very, very strong. So every time I see something in Scripture and I begin to sign up for it, and I think when a person names the name of Jesus, you sign up for a different economic system than the one that we basically live in. And when I begin to move in that direction, is my heart, oh, yes, this is the way to go. And I get ready to step out, boom, I got all these fears. I got all these what if. What if this happens? What is that? What if I don't have enough? What if I have to use my just in case? What if it's such and such? The greatest honor that you and I can pay God when you walk off of this mountain is to trust him. The greatest dishonor that you and I pay our Redeemer is to know the truth but yet not willing to step out in it because we really don't trust him. Martin Luther made the statement, he said, uh, there are uh, three conversions. There's the conversion of the mind, there's the conversion of the heart, and there's the conversion of the pocketbook. And usually the third one is the most difficult, to sign over, to surrender and to get God's perspective on it. What I'm going to do, I'm going to look at three or four different passages, and I'll go very, very quickly, and I hope that you'll have a chance to, to go back and study these passages yourself and just get your piece of paper out and your own personal conversation to the one who loves you perfectly and say, okay, Lord, what are you saying to me? Let me start with a story. Let's say that uh, we've got a guy by the name of Joe. And Joe is an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. Uh, a lot of articles as it relates to him, what he's accomplished. He was a guy that had a goal that by the age of 50, he wanted to be worth 50 million. Uh, he was well on track. Uh, financial section carried articles about he and his company. He uh, was on a fast pace, 12, 14, 15 hours a day. 
his wife, his beloved wife, kept saying, you need to slow down. He says, look, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing it for the kids so you can have what you have. You can do what you want to do. I said, just, I, I know there's going to be a time that I'm going to be able to step back and we're going to be able to have more time together. Joe, as he kind of went through the fast pace of his life, let's say that uh, there was something, you know, there's something to this, this spiritual life. There's, there's something missing, but I, I, I just have to do what I know to do. So after his wife uh, tried to persuade him one more time, and he just said, look, it's just a couple of years, and we'll be home free. Start of the new year, he walked in, a CFO says, hey, Joe, I think we're exactly where we ought to be. There are some people that are now interested. It looks like that they're willing to pay maybe 12 to 15 times earnings. That'll give us the nut that we won't have to work another day. It's everything that we've hoped for. It's everything that we've dreamed for. It's what we've given our energies to. And Joe comes home and he tells his wife, he says, look, give me one more year. And after this, we'll have everything that we need to have. Uh, We won't have to worry about anything. You can do whatever you want to do. The kids can have everything and so forth. And she said, okay, okay. So all of a sudden, Joe goes to the office the next day. The CFO comes in, and he notices that Joe's head's down on his computer. And he goes and he shakes Joe, and Joe doesn't move. Joe's gone. Financial section picked it up, said, one of the young creative entrepreneurs uh, passed away suddenly. Uh, Forbes magazine picked up an article on him. Uh, said that this guy uh, was on the cutting edge of the technology. Uh, His friends got together with his wife, and they said, you know, Joe, his favorite song was I Did It My Way by Frank Sinatra. I I think he would be incredibly pleased if you put on his tombstone success. She said, okay, if y'all think that's the, the right thing to have, we know Joe would really like that on his tombstone. So they have the funeral. And they're by the graveside, and uh, all of a sudden, God dispenses an angel from heaven down to the cemetery. The people after the graveside, they're saying uh, goodbyes and, and uh, sharing words of comfort for the wife and the family. And pretty soon, the last car drives away, and the angel walks over, and he takes his finger, and he scratches out the word success, and he puts fool, F-O-O-L, fool. That's kind of a modern-day story of a passage that I want to start off with in Luke 12. If you'd put that up, uh, and let me just read it to you. Jesus is talking and said, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator between you. Then he said to them, watch out, Mazel. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crop. Then he said to him, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns, and I will build bigger barns, and I will store all my grain and my goods. 
And I said to myself, you have plenty of goods laid up for many years. Kick back, take it easy, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Why did God call him a fool? The land that he had was, it was just, he just happened to have some good productive land. His barns, God isn't against barns and storage and so forth. I believe he called him a fool because just as it said, Jesus said, he had all this and he wasn't rich toward God. He didn't understand God's frame of reference for it. You know, as I was meditating on that passage of Scripture, I thought of Hosea 13. I'm sure this little Jewish boy who thought he had it made knew this. Listen to Hosea 13. I care for you in the desert, God says, in the land of the burning heat. When I fed you, they were satisfied. And when they were satisfied, they became proud. And when they became proud, they forgot me. Wow. Lee Iacocca makes the statement. He says, here I am in the twilight years of my life, and I have still not figured out what life is all about. One thing is for sure. Wealth and fame are for the birds. End of quote. He found his identity in the creation, just like culture told him to. But he's at the end of it, and he said, uh, you know, wealth and fame is for the birds. Now, you see, the Christian can't say that. The Christian cannot say our wealth and our fame are for the birds. They are not for the birds. They are for us to richly enjoy, but they are also have been entrusted to us for a greater purpose, to be rich toward God and the purposes of God and that which God wishes to accomplish. Now, you take a guy like Rick Warren. Rick Warren makes the statement a little contrary here. He, he kind of caught it. He said, you know, you have to be stupid to sell 15 million books and make all the money he made. He said, you had to be stupid to think that that was just for me. He said, God just didn't give me all of those funds for me. He gave them for me to be rich toward God. And so Rick Warren is still living in the same house, the tens of millions that they had driving the same car. Now, that doesn't mean if a person makes that type of money, there's anything wrong with going and buying another house and so forth. We all live in great houses. He's not against the houses here. But he's the perspective that he understood that when God entrusted those resources, whoa, whoa, I need to be very sensitive to what God's saying to me. You know, man, the, uh, I've been around a lot of people, and I don't think the world is impressed with Christians who get rich and say, thank you, Jesus. But I tell you what the world is impressed with. They're impressed with Christians who get rich and say, thank you, Jesus, and because they cherish the ways of God, they joyously give it away for his purpose, and they consider it as gain from God's perspective. Now, what I want to do, I want to look at an Old Testament passage. 
In this Old Testament passage, I hope you'll go back uh, next week, and it's, uh, uh, it's Haggai. It's two little chapters, and I think it is maybe has an awful lot to do with the message of what God might be saying to us as, uh, as uh, Christians right now. Let me give you a little background here. First of all, I want you to understand the New Testament tell us, tells us all they had was the Old Testament Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 10, it makes a statement in which it says, uh, these things are for our examples and for our instruction. We're not under the law. That's why I said I'm not going to talk about legalistic tithing up here. We're under grace. And the standards for grace, well, I mean, make the law look pitiful. It was a law. They had the laws of tithing and the laws that they had there. Uh, we're not under that. But yet there are principles, and there's God, how God deals with the heart we're to gleam out of from the passages in the Old Testament. When the Scripture makes a statement like it does in Timothy, all Scripture is inspired by God and is good for instruction and righteousness and reproof so that the man of God may be equipped. So What were the Scriptures? When he was writing Timothy, they didn't have a New Testament. It was the Torah. It was the Old Testament. And so as we look here, we can say, okay, Lord, what are the principles I can glean out of this? Now, let me give you a little background of Haggai. Why don't you t uh, take that back, uh, Jim, uh, before I give the background here. Ezra is uh, a contemporary of Haggai. And Ezra gives us an awful lot of insight about what's happening in this particular passage. The people had been taken from Israel into the Babylonian captivity of 70 years. All of a sudden, the land was, had been devastated. They're 70 years into captivity. And now Cyrus, a king, a Persian king, all of a sudden God puts in his heart to go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. There's a pagan king that says, I'm going to build a temple for the most high God. Uh, God's just doing something there. And Ezra says, 42,000 of the Jewish brothers and sisters went back to Jerusalem with a particular mission and mandate, rebuild my temple. They were given resources, financial resources. They were given provisions. And they go back and they start rebuilding the temple. And there's a sense of joy. And in seven months, they have a slab laid out there. And they build this altar and they offer this great sacrifice. And in the first seven months, everybody's focused and they're energetic. And then something happens. The culture begins to come at them and make fun of them and laugh at them and harass them. And they get discouraged. And they don't do anything for 15 years. And God sends Haggai. And he puts his finger on some very important issues here. Now let's look at this text here. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day, this is 15 years later, the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shetalit, governor of Judea, and to Joshua, son Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. God very clearly said, go back to Jerusalem build my temple. The temple's different. You and I are the temple of the Spirit of God today. I mean, wherever you and I go, 
The Spirit of God is within us. There it was the Shekinah glory was located in a place. And God wanted a holy of holies that he could descend with his purpose. And he said, that's the mission that you've got. You know, one of the biggest struggles I think that we have in our Christian life is what I would call postponed obedience. You know, when you hear the truth of God, you can either engage or retreat. And of course, uh, our retreating is never overt. It's our passivity. It's our complacency. We always intend, I'm going to get involved. That's a great cause. Well, I know that's what God should do in such and such. And it's our postponed obedience. And so most of the struggles you and I have as Christians in our Christian life is the result of our postponed obedience. And so these people are saying, it's just not the right time. Yeah, we know we've got go into the world and make disciples of all nations. We know that's what your heart is, that the name of Jesus Christ, that people have an opportunity to respond to the love story that we saw last night multiplied by infinity. We know all that's true, and we're going to get involved, but, you know, not this week, next week, not this year, next year. So Haggai tells them in the next verse what God's point of view is. The Lord sent his messenger through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruin? Hey, come on, Maisel. You got all these superficial excuses about why you're not engaged. You know my word. You know the truth you've heard over and over, and you always intend to. But Mesa, what's the real reason? You're over here. You're not building my temple. You're building your house. God doesn't have anything against houses. He, it's, 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 it's a sarcasm. Luxurious houses. They were panel houses. The resources were being taken to rebuild their house instead of God's house. And so now God is trying to get their attention. He loves them, just like he loves you and I. And so he comes down here, and he says, this is what the Lord of heaven, the army says. Look at what is happening to you. You have planted much, but harvest little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but you're still thirsty. You put on clothes, and you can't keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with hose. You hope for a rich harvest, but it was a poor one. When you bought your, brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, saith the Lord, while you are busy building your own fine houses. Wow. God says, look, Maisel, you got a mission. Make disciples of all nations. And in some way, in somehow, every believer in the body of Christ is to play a part in a role according to your giftedness and how God wishes to use you. But it says... You're always postponing. And you know, John, you're sitting there, and it's always, you're over here. I just don't have time for that. I'm on a survival mode. I work harder every year, and I never can make ends meet. 
I can never get the dots. I can never get ahead. God says, let me tell you something, Maisel. You say it's the credit crunch. You say uh, it's the deficit. You say it's the global recession. Maisel, you're my son. I love you. I'm the one who blows it away. I'm the one that removes it. Those are just instruments to my church that my church might get the attention once again back upon my purposes and what I have called them to. And they go on down here, and he makes the statement. On the next one, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thoughts to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build a house so that my may take pleasure and that my name may be honored. Maisel, it's a time for you to rethink. You need to get back engaged for why you exist on planet Earth. My glory and my purposes. Get to work. You got a choice. Seek first the kingdom of heaven, Maisel, and all this other stuff is going to be added to you. Make my glory your priority. And I guarantee you when you seek my glory, it will always lead to your good and to the blessings of your life. So God comes along here, and boy, is this a good response. Look at this. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shetala, Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people, what? Obeyed the voice of the Lord. They said, we got it. We've been saying, it's not the time. We got the message. It is the time to engage. It is the time to rise up, O church, and get back to the basics of that which God is calling us to. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, the message of the prophet, uh, prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. Now, God's going to do two things. God blesses obedience. Satan's number one agenda is to try to get us. We're not going to go out and, 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 and do something overt. It's, it's postponing it. I intend. I intend. God blesses obedience. And he makes this statement here. God does two things. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the Lord of the people. He says, I am with you. And then he gets down here. In the next one, he says, from this day forward, the 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the Lord's foundation of the temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig trees and the pomegranate and the olive trees uh, have not borne any fruit. You plant all this stuff, John, and you sow a whole bunch, but you reach a little and such and such. When are you going to catch it? I'm blowing you away. I'm trying to get your, comp uh, your attention. But when they said, Okay, God, you got it. I'm all in. He says, I am with you. And then he says, from this day on, I will bless you. Wow. What, what more do you want to leave the mountain with than the confidence that the living God says, I am with you, and I will bless you from this point on. He says, in tying this together, 
so and so and so and so I'm with you. Let's, let's go the next one. Let me look quickly at Malachi. Malachi is his conversation in which God is having, in which he says, return to me and I will return to you. But you say, how are we to return? Will a man of God yet rob me? But you say, how do we rob you in tithes and offerings? You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Now, once again, we're not under the, we're not under the tithe law. We're under grace. But when you think about where we are in the financial arena as it relates to where we are as the church, listen to some of these stats. In America, total population there are only 5% of the people who give away 10% or more of the resources entrusted to them. The more generous, people who pray, read their Bibles, go to church pretty much on a weekly basis, only 10%, 12% of the people give 10% or more people who call themselves born-again Christians, only 9% of all born-again Christians give 10% or more. God wants us to experience him in a supernatural way. And one of the ways he looks at that he can entrust himself in his riches is what I do with the resources. He makes this statement. He says, when the whole tithe, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not open the doors of the floodgates of heaven and pour out to you such a blessing that you will not have room for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops. One translation said, I'll rebuke the devourer. There's a devourer out there. God's after our hearts, and he is zealous, and he is passionate because of his great love, of what he wishes to do in and through us with the speck of time we've got down here. I will rebuke the devourer of your crops and the vines of your fields that have not, not cast their fruit, saith the Lord. Then the nations will call you blessed, for you will be my delight. Brothers, this is not prosperity gospel. This is not a matter, okay, I'm going to give so I can get. No, <laughs> I'm going to give and put my heart in such a place to live a life of generosity and joyful giving because of his honor and for his glory. One passage, last one I want to look at, and then I want to make a couple of observations, and then I'll quit. This is about a 10-hour type of discussion, as you well know, and we're highlighting some of these things. The question is, yeah, well, John, you, you just really don't know how bad it is. Uh, you know, my 401K is down. I love what Kelly said about those Vietnamese today. They cashed in their 401. This passage I'm going to look at is their story of the illustration that he was reporting to. We've all been hit. Assets are down. Such and such. I want to I want to I want to show you what God does with he has some Christians that are in a 
in a very difficult situation in Jerusalem. And what God does to meet the needs of the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, he, he gets the poorest of the poor to raise up resources and assets to meet the needs of the poor Christians over here in Jerusalem. Why? God be the glory. Look at this passage that Paul talks about. He's saying, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with the Lord's will. I wonder if you and I could have any of these people that were part of this game plan here, if they'd come in here tonight and we'd say, okay, we're going to, you know, we got this passage of Scripture and we have a hard time relating to this uh, over here. We just want to ask you, is, 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 is this verse of Scripture, is, is that the way it really was? Yeah. Um, well, the next question we Americans have to have, was it worth it? Oh, was it worth it, Mason? Was it worth it? Now, where did this generosity come from? Did it come from their prosperity? Did it come from just the deal that was closed? I've got a friend of mine that closed a deal last year for $16 million. He took $10 million and he put it aside for the kingdom fund that he has. And, but he's still living off of $4 million. I've got another friend that made a million dollars a month. He gave away $11 million, but he said, don't feel pity for me. I still live off of a million. Is there, is there a is there a prosperity? We, we got a great deal. No. Their generosity came from extreme poverty. I don't have a just-in-case account. <laughs> well, did it come because their culture was, was, was cheering them on and, and said, yeah, great, boy, you guys are, boy, what a model, you guys. No, it says they were afflicted. There was pressure from the culture. Where did their joy come from? Where does this take place? They got a vision of the love of Christ. And their joy swelled up in understanding the grace that was made theirs, just like those Vietnamese did today. God wanted to raise the money for the Christians in Jerusalem. <laughs> so he uses the affliction of the poverty-stricken Christians that are filled with joy because it's about the glory of their king. Let me close with four quick applications here. You know, when you talk like this, guys, there's two things I, I, I want to be very sensitive to. Number one, uh, 
as I said earlier, but, but I want to make this real clear. This is, this is not a guilt message. It is not a shame message. It is, it is a father tenderly wooing us to catch a vision of his heart and for his purposes. And that's why we're talking about what needs to take place to become a joyous, generous, joyful giver. Not, well, okay, we've done our tithe here. Just, you know, this, when we hear this, it's fear hits us. I mean, what, if, if God asked you to begin to do something financially beyond your means or your comfort level, how does that make you feel? What are you thinking? Are, are, are you thinking about rationalizing all the thought process of why I can't do that? Or am I getting a glimpse of, you know, I'm all in on this. I don't understand this. I think there are four things that help us navigate this. Number one, I put down priority. Uh, there are two ways that people entrust their resources to the king of glory, off the top and off the bottom. And usually those that have the habit of giving what's off of the bottom, if there's anything left over, when I've had all of my expenses and everything done, there's usually not anything left. God wants some sons and some daughters who say, wow, you're the owner, I'm the manager. You say, well, John, I, you know, I know God owns it all. You know, you've heard all messages how God owns it. But we don't live that way. We don't live that way. And I have to make a distinctive priority. Lord, right off the top, and then whatever you have left over for what you wish to do with me and my family. And I guarantee you God cares more about your family than you do or that I do. The second thing here, I, I, I put down percentage. <laughs> and, and that's kind of dry. It's kind of cut and dry. But you've got to start somewhere. If less than 9% of the evangelicals, 10% of the born-again Christians and the people who read their Bibles and so forth, is about 10% only give away 10% or more. Somewhere I've got to say, if I'm going to start this, doesn't make it, start at 2%, start at 5%, start at 10 I, It doesn't make any difference, but start somewhere off of the top, we're all in. It's just kind of the discipline when you pick out a percentage. There's nothing sacred about the percentage. The third thing I think is really important, and this is where the battle comes, I call progressive giving. If your faith is going to grow, your faithfulness has to grow. If you just say, I'm going to give 10% and make that available, that's a, that's a status quo. 20 years from now, I'm giving 10%. My faith hasn't grown. And so, 
I, I, I encourage a progressiveness in giving. If you're given 5%, try 7%. You're given 10%, give 12%. You're given 15%, try to give 17%. It's a policy that we have. And let me tell you how serious this is. And let me tell you how sinful my heart is. We have a policy of, 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 try, of, of giving more each year than we gave the previous year. Now, I'm pretty old, and so that sucker's kind of up there. And so I'm having this conversation in January with the Lord. We just got through, got through doing what we committed to do uh, in 08. And I'm sitting there, and I'm saying, Lord, you know, things are, you know, it's, it's bad. I mean, you know, it's such and such. I said, Is, how, how, about, how about if I just increase uh, $1,000 this next year? Over? Boy, it's just... May so. May so. All you have seen is my faithfulness and my loving kindness and my tenderness all these years, and you're trying to negotiate just another $1,000 next year. That was so real to me. I said, okay, Lord, we'll kick it up 10% <laughs> this next year. And then there was a peace. The fourth thing that I have here is that you all do. This room is filled with generous people. I call it being open to be prompted, prompt giving. Uh, let the Spirit of God prompt you. You don't have any plans. You just, a situation arises, and, and you're just saying, Lord, my heart's available. My resources are yours. There was a great verse, and uh, once again, Jesus is saying, he said, use your wealth to win friends so when your money has failed, your friends may welcome you into eternal habitations. Isn't that a great verse? Use your money, Maisel, to win people so that when the money is gone, those are the people that are the real treasures that will greet you in heaven. I had a little situation on this about a month ago, and uh, I was down in Jacksonville, this couple, and we were, and we were at a restaurant, and there was a little black lady. She came up, and I said, I said, you know, we're getting, we're getting, uh, uh, Harry, pray I get through this. Uh, uh, we're getting ready to just thank the Lord for our meal. Is there anything that uh, we can, I can pray for you for? And she said, yeah, she said, oh, she said, would you? She said, would you just pray that I and my children can make it? And uh, how can you pray <laughs> uh, that her and her children can make it and walk out? Well, we did that. So we got our check. Our check was about 30 bucks, and God just prompted me to give her a $100 tip. 
And so I, you know, put the tip and put the $100 bill in there. We left. We go outside. We're getting in the car. This waitress comes running out. And she says, oh, sir, put the tips. She says, thank you. I said, I said, thank Jesus. She said, I said, do you have a Bible? And she said, yeah, I have a Bible. I said, will you do me one favor tonight? She said, I'll do anything you ask me. <laughs> and I said, will you take your Bible and turn to John chapter 3 and read John chapter 3 three times tonight before you go to sleep? She says, I'll do that. I'll do that. Thank you. I got the blessing. That's how God wishes to use us. You know what? It all comes down. I got to, I need to shut up. It all comes down to really, uh, I think, values. I will never, ever give up that which I value, my money, unless I believe that I'm really giving it up to that which I value more, the glory of Christ. That's what you got to decide on this issue. Do we live like this? I know it's so easy to start out like this and then become like this. But I think the message to the church at this time in history in America a big part of what God is doing is to rise up, O Christian, once again, to live before me like this and my purposes. Father, uh, I pray you take the words tonight and manifest them according to the need of each one of us here. I pray, Father, that uh, each man here would get alone with a piece of paper and a pen and say, Lord, what do you have to say to me? And you would speak clearly. Thank you for my brothers. Thank you for how they provoke me to love and good works. We love you, and we thank you for the great salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.